Well, good morning, and uh, this morning we'll continue our journey through the study of worship in the Bible and the Reformed tradition. So this morning we want to consider the topic, as I mentioned, of preaching and corporate worship. Now, within the history of the Protestant church and back through the Middle Ages and the early church and even in the Bible's own record, preaching is at the forefront of the life of public worship, the church's worship. So that's not to say that the other elements of worship are irrelevant or lower in importance in practice. And we've talked about that a little bit already, or a lot already, as we've looked at the different elements of worship. But preaching has always been a fundamental part of worship. Now, preaching isn't just sort of to put, to have a part in worship that's, uh, that just sort of makes it whole and just covers the basis. So we're not, we don't preach in worship just to say we've done all the different things that we should do in worship. Uh, and John Calvin even said on this that um, the word goes out of the mouth of God in such a way that it likewise goes out of the mouth of men. For God does not speak openly from heaven but employs men as his instruments. So some ecclesiastical traditions like uh, Roman Catholics, um, Lutherans, they put a high premium on um, the mass and the, the Eucharist as the main elements of worship. So they would say that God meets with his people <clears throat> most essentially in the mass and the Eucharist. Now, this is often to the, ne the neglect of the exposition of God's word. But we would say that the Lord's Supper, the prayers, the songs of the church, even baptism find their spiritual efficacy or power as they are tied to the teaching and preaching of God's word. Um, so they don't stand alone or separate from the word of God. The word taught and explains, explained gives courage and faith to the person hearing to take hold of the promises of God to his people. <clears throat> so when the minister is explaining and expositing the word of God to the people, it is as God himself speaking to his people for their soul's encouragement and joy as they take hold of the promises of God. That's, that's important to remember. This is where God is present. That means that the word of God, preached even by frail, fallen men, can still become God's speaking. In fact, it is God speaking. So a question I asked myself as I was reading through this and just studying this topic and even just over the past few years of thinking about um, reformed worship and preaching and stuff is what does Christ bind himself to as the promise of his presence? In other words, what does Christ look at and say, when this is happening, I'm there. I'm in the midst of the people. I am with them. How, does this, how do the sheep hear Christ's voice is another way to maybe ask that. It's through the preaching of his word. He binds himself to the preaching of his word. When faithful preaching is, is happening, Christ says, I'm there. He promises himself. He binds himself to that as the promise of his presence. And it's unique in that way from other other instances. Uh, that's not saying God isn't with us when we're at home studying. We have family worship uh, every night, read some verses, sing a couple hymns, pray together. Uh, God is there. He's with us because God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. Uh, but there is a unique 
um, aspect um, when the word is being preached and we're gathered on the Lord's Day together and the word is being preached where Christ binds himself to that. We see that in Matthew 18 and other places throughout Corinthians, first, first and second Corinthians. But there's a unique aspect to that. Um, so <clears throat> another question, if Christ is not here on earth and yet he says, my sheep hear my voice, you have to wonder, how do the sheep hear Christ's voice? He says, my sheep hear my voice. He's, he's not here. He's not presently walking with his disciples. He's not teaching in synagogues. How do his sheep hear his voice today, now? It's the preaching. It's the preaching of God's word. That's how the sheep hear. When the preaching goes forth with power, by the spirit, faithful to the word, the sheep hear the voice of Christ. That puts a high premium on faithful preaching. Christ says, they will hear my voice. And matter of fact, they'll hear it through preaching, through faithful preaching. And that's just an amazing thing to think about. There's promise in that. There's, there's mystery, we have to say. There's also confidence in the fact that as the word is preached, Christ is drawing. The spirit is drawing the sheep to Christ. He's drawing them to himself. As the word goes out, God is effectually calling his sheep to himself, and they will hear his voice. Now, I can spend more time talking about that, but in this class, what I want to focus in on is the practice of preaching and exposition. So I'm going to try and cover this topic from the Old Testament um, and one or two places where we see examples of it uh, through the early church up through the Middle Ages. So um, that's a lot to cover, but I'll, I'll try the best I can to get through what I have, okay? Now, the first place we see any hint as to what reading and explaining God's word is, is in Nehemiah 8. <clears throat> and you can turn to Nehemiah 8. We'll, we'll look at it together. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, Israel is in exile. So they're being disciplined for their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion. And the Persian emperor gives Ezra the scribe permission to reestablish Jerusalem's temple and worship. So Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and the other leaders of Israel have an and uh, this inaugural sort of solemn assembly, and they read from the book of the law. And this apparently went on for a week from the Sabbath day. So are you guys at Nehemiah? Who, who's there? Nehemiah 8. Let me have you read verses 1 through 10. I think it is. Sure. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. You can stop at verse 8, sorry. But keep going. On the first day of the seventh month, seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until <laughs> midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maziah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadna, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he stood, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Masiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josephad, Hannah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, thank you. So this is the first place that we see a hint of what reading and explaining God's word looks like. <clears throat> now what's interesting here is that Ezra isn't acting as this royal office or within this royal office um, as an officer or king, but he's a scribe. He's one devoted to the study of scripture. Yet he's the one facilitating and reestablishing temple life and worship for Israel. Also, notice what happens in Nehemiah 8. Notice that it's considered an act of public worship, right? So it's not private worship. This is public worship here. The people were gathered, 8-1. The law was brought to the assembled people, 8-2. A wooden platform, a pulpit was established, 8-4 a central place from which the law was read and explained was set up. There's a benediction after the law is read to which the people together respond. Amen, amen. So this is a corporate public setting. This is happening as the people are gathered together. Right? This is a corporate worship context. Now, this event became the model for synagogue worship. The scriptures were read publicly and explained. The elements of synagogue worship were modeled after this Nehemiah 8 event. So there's this lifting up of the scroll of the law. There's an introductory prayer. There is a, a pulpit, the people standing, um, the presence and, um, in, the, in the presence of the readers, the word is explained. It's read and it's explained passage by passage. And you see even in this, um, and I, I preached a sermon on this a couple years back, so it might be helpful to, to listen to that as well. I dealt with Nehemiah 8 in, in two, two parts. But you see, even in this, as I was studying this uh, then, you see the, the Levites going out among the people and explaining the law to them to make sure that everyone understood. So there's an explanation of God's word. There's a, there's a teaching of God's word so that the people understood from a central place in the pulpit, but then they also went out amongst these million plus people and explained the law, explained the word of God. 
So that lectule, and I, I talked about this back in, in our uh, second Sunday school class, or the one I taught, on reading in public worship. I talked about the Lectio Continua, the Lectio Selecta, and the difference between those two. But here you see this Lectio Continua or a model, where it's a continual reading of the scriptures and an explanation of that. That became primary in synagogue worship as well. It's drawn from Nehemiah 8. Now, during this seven-day feast in Nehemiah 8, in that context, they read through the whole book of the law for seven days, starting each morning where they left off the day before. So the model is that model of Lectio Continua, continual reading, is broken out in synagogue worship where the reading done each Sabbath continues. It picks up from where they left off the Sabbath before. <clears throat> so you see this sort of a model of Lectio Continua, reading through the scriptures, reading through the law. Now, there are some uh, characteristics of public worship or corporate worship here that are worth taking note of as well. <clears throat> the fact that there was prayer and a benediction is important. And that after the benediction, the people together said, amen, is important. The public reading of scripture was already prefaced by prayer. That's important as well. We see that in Nehemiah 8. There's prayer, there's sort of a consecration of the time, there's a benediction. All of these things, they may seem small, but they're important to help us to understand what's actually happening here, right? How is this different from sort of a private uh, worship? And so, um, so this, along with the other characteristics I mentioned, uh, shows us that the public context of this event was considered, again, to be worship. Now, another place in the Bible that tells us how scriptures were read and preached is in Luke. So Jesus is preaching in a synagogue in Nazareth. Now, during this time in the New Testament, it was a custom for a visiting rabbi to be invited to read a passage of scripture and then to give something like a commentary on it. So the resident rabbi in Luke called Jesus to the platform and Jesus gave him the scroll of Isaiah. And so Jesus opened it to the place where he had in mind, and he explained himself from the scriptures. Now, <clears throat> something else that's important to note, as, as I do this, I'm trying to um, help us to trace uh, the uh, development, and evolution of preaching um, from the Old Testament throughout the church. At this time, in synagogue services, there were two lessons. This is really fascinating to me. There were two lessons. The first lesson was from the law, and the second lesson was from the prophets. The law lessons were divided up so that over the course of three years, in any given synagogue, you would read through the whole law. Eventually, this became uniform. It became just the norm, commonplace. But what's interesting is that the second lesson, the lesson from the prophets, was left to the discretion of the preacher or the rabbi, even the visiting rabbi. So they could choose any passage from the prophets, and the passage picked from the prophets for the second lesson was used to explain the passage from the law. Does that make sense? So in, in a synagogue context, two lessons. There's a reading of the law, 
And then there's, that's the first lesson. And the second lesson was an explanation of that reading of the law. And they would pull from one of the prophets to do that. The, second le- the first lesson was uniform. All the synagogues were doing the same thing, reading through the law. The second lesson was given, it was at the discretion of the teacher. They could choose whatever prophet they wanted and use that prophet to explain the law. Now, what's interesting about this is even that early on, you see the principle of scripture being used to explain scripture. That's very important. That's at the heart of why we preach expositionally, why we preach verse by verse, but also why God's word is the primary interpreter of God's word. The only infallible interpreter of the word of God is the word of God. And this is very old. This was happening even in synagogue worship. Now you can imagine in this context, it's a great opportunity to proclaim the gospel during synagogue worship. And that's actually what the apostles did. You see that in Acts 13, 14 to 43. When Paul was on his missionary preaching journeys, what's the first thing he did when he went to a new city? He exercised his right as the visiting rabbi to preach, to share his commentary drawing from the prophets. Paul was a qualified Jewish Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, He was qualified to teach in the synagogue, and that's one of the first things he did. He went to the synagogues and exercised his right as a visiting rabbi, and he took the opportunity to preach, to explain Christ from the prophets as it interpreted the law. That is amazing. There's this expositional preaching where the word is used to explain the word, And Paul is doing it to bring his hearers to see that Christ is the Messiah. That's the type of preacher I want to be. (laughs) I aspire to that. We see Jesus did the same thing, too. So this was uh, this was Paul's custom. It was a great opportunity, of course. The law would be read by the resident rabbi and the visiting preacher has the opportunity to explain from the prophets God's word revelation and promises as they pointed to Jesus. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned that uh, this, uh, this, there's a pattern of the first lesson and the second lesson, um, law then prophets, and how the prophets were used to explain the law. Again, this principle of scripture being used to explain scripture is seen there. Now, we usually see an example of this, or rather, we, we actually see an example of this in what Jesus did in the book of John. I mentioned Luke before, but we're going to look at John, where we see... Jesus doing the same thing. Really fascinating. So turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now I'm going to sort of jump to a couple different places in John. Verse 31. Uh, verse 4, verse 45. Um, but I want us to see how Jesus does this same, the same thing. So uh, the text from the law is quoted in John 6, 31. It says, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Now, this text comes from the story of the manna in the book of Exodus. And you see that in Exodus 16, 4. So Jesus is quoting something from Exodus 16, 4. Since John specifically tells us that the feast of Passover was at hand, which we see in John 16, 4, we have good reason to believe that uh, they're dealing with the lesson normally read uh, uh, during the Sabbath before Passover. <clears throat> now, the sermon has a second lesson, a lesson from the prophets. He says, and they shall all be taught by God, John 6, 45. He's drawing from Isaiah 50, 54, 13. Now, with the aid of the text from Isaiah, Jesus interprets the text from Exodus. Scripture is being used to interpret scripture. He gave them bread from heaven. That's from the law, Exodus 16:4. <clears throat> they shall all be taught by God. That's from the prophets, Isaiah 54, 13. So this sort of homiletical principle, Jesus himself honored, Jesus himself did. And more importantly, Jesus demonstrates for, for us in this sort of sermon he preaches the relationship between these two lessons. This was common in synagogue worship and in teaching at that time. Now we see this in another place, or I'll, I'll talk about this a little more, um, where we see Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus sort of exposition using this principle. Now as we look at this sermon, we find that Jesus takes four phrases from the text and explains each phrase in, in its turn. First he takes the phrase, he gave. And he explains that it was not Moses who gave the manna, but the father who gives you true bread from heaven, John 6, 32. Next, Jesus explains what is meant by bread. He tells them in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Then Jesus explains what is meant by the bread being from heaven. He tells them that he is the living bread that comes down from heaven. Here he applies the text from Isaiah, and they shall all be taught by God. Jesus presents himself as fulfilling the prophecy. In Jesus' teaching, God himself is teaching his people. And then finally, Jesus explains <clears throat> the word to, or, or to eat, by telling his listeners, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, John 6, 54. Now, this is really, really interesting. Jesus is using this principle of first, second, or first lesson, second lesson, law being read, prophets being used to explain the law. Jesus is doing that, and he's tying it to himself as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And you see him saying that same thing later on, right, when he's on the road to Emmaus, when he's having these conversations with his disciples, um, even in Paul's letters to the, his, his, his um, epistles, he talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And you see Jesus himself doing that here. But as I was studying this, I was like, turned up. <laughs> like, this is amazing to read and to see how Jesus interprets scripture uh, concerning himself. Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to pause there. And before I get into early church practice and principle, um, I'll give you guys opportunity to ask questions or share comments.
Oh, okay. <clears throat> Let's keep trucking. Okay, so now I'm going to transition to the early church. Now, this part of uh, my class is just going to be more like a survey. We're not going to necessarily be walking through different scriptures, but I want to give us a peek into what preaching looked like um, from the early church through the medieval ages. Um, and I'm sort of setting us up for next week's class. Okay, so <clears throat> let's look at the ministry of the word in the early church. So from the records we have on worship and practice in the early church, the same elements we see in synagogue worship as essential are the same ones we see as essential in the early church. So it's the reading and the preaching of the scriptures. Uh, Justin Martyr, who wrote in the second century, said, the ordinary service had reading from the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets. And apparently, when the reader was finished, the presiding minister gave a discourse or teaching, uh, encouraging the people to practice the virtues that they had just read about. <clears throat> what we can learn from this is what we talked about a few weeks ago in the class on reading scripture and corporate worship. The New Testament texts were regarded as the word of God and incorporated into this public worship of the church. Also in Justin Martyr's records, uh, there seems to be uh, a single reader and a single preacher, which is different from the synagogue where there could have been multiple readers and um, multiple participants. Origen. <clears throat> Origen is also um, he has a lot written that helps us to sort of get a peek into the life of the early church. So he lived from 185 to 254. And Origins, uh, he's regarded by many as the genius of the early church and the first great Christian biblical scholar. And he had a very large collection of sermons. Now people go back and forth on whether or not Origen is of the church or from the church. <laughs> but that's for another conversation. Um, and my and this class assume that origin is <laughs> of the church, from the church. Unfortunately, his works were destroyed in the fifth century, but thank God by his providence, he had copyists and translators translate many of Origen's sermons. So they tell us about the approach and content of preaching. Now Origen was uh, preaching to a very large Jewish community. So his sermons were directed mainly to a Jewish population. And that's important when we read his sermons and writings. His cultural context is relevant, as it often is. Origen's evangelistic message was that Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures, but his approach was by the exposition of the Bible, day after day, chapter after chapter. In the fourth century, we start to see more fixed liturgies. In the apostolic constitutions, you see something um, that's a little different. So the Apostolic Constitutions, it's a collection of writings that structured like books, book one, book two, book three, book four. And it shows us the practice and customs of worship in the churches at Antioch. And <clears throat> what we see there are not two lessons like we see in the Jewish synagogue, law, prophets, explain, but we actually see four lessons that was common in practice. It was a reading from the law, followed by the reading from the prophets, just like the Old Testament synagogue worship, but also a reading from the epistles and a reading from the gospels. So it was like a New Testament couplet along with the Old Testament couplet. And that's what we see in the documents and the records we have from those early churches at Antioch. 
Um, now I want to do uh, or continue this survey um, and we'll look at John uh, Chrysostom. So Chrysostom lived from 347 to 407. He was a presbyter in Antioch, but preached daily for almost 12 years um, at a very well-known cathedral in that area. Now, because of that, he had a reputation as this great preacher. When, he, when we look at his sermons, we see that he preached through books of the Bible, explaining them verse by verse. He had 89 sermons on the Gospel of Matthew, 67 sermons in Genesis, 44 sermons in Acts. So this gives you a peek into this thorough exposition of Chrysostom and his approach to scripture. I remember when Pastor Jack preached through John, how many sermons did he have? It was a lot. Um, well, it wasn't 66 or 89, <laughs> but this was the normal practice of uh, preaching. Um, and you'll, you'll see this more as we look at some of these, Augustine and Ambrose and others who had these long expositions of text. Another early church renowned preacher was Ambrose of Milan. Uh, he lived from around 339 to 397. He was influenced more by the Alexandrian exegesis approach. So that means that he preferred uh, allegory to the grammatical historical method of interpreting the text. Now for us today, this Alexandrian allegorizing may not be that attractive. We would probably leave Ambrose's service wondering about his commitment to expositional preaching because of his approach to preaching. But uh, at his time, uh, his listeners were very anxious and joyful to hear him preach. Although his sermons were primarily expository sermons, he did often respond to the social and political issues of the day. And you'll see that a lot as we look at these early church preachers and the medieval preachers. They had a ear and an eye to the issues of the day. Um, and we can talk about whether or not that's good or bad, but just to give you a peek into this. Um, so Ambrose, he was a very successful, or he had much success as a high priest um, or a high state official. Um, and he was a high state official before he was a minister. And so he used his influence really in the civil uh, courts by his works as a preacher and by his writing of letters more than by his uh, preaching from the pulpit. Uh, so he was uh, raised, he was uh, crafted in a certain context. He became a preacher later, but he retained that influence in the civil courts. And that was where his influence was primarily seen. A disciple of Ambrose uh, was the great Augustine of Hippo. So he lived from 354 to 430. He was baptized in Milan and moved back to North Africa where he became a very popular expository preacher and the foremost profound thinker in the church. Now even that intro to Augustine, if you know anything about Augustine, feels like an insult because he did so much in the church, in the world. Um, but he is, although we primarily know Augustine from his uh, City of God work, from his confessions, you've probably heard of that, um, Augustine was a preacher. He was an expositor of the word. We have 124 sermons from him in the Gospel of John. And on the Psalms, he has this commentary expanding years where he wrote on 
the Christian in relation to the Psalms and Psalms as God's promises and word to his people. So his approach to preaching was uh, this practice of expository preaching, um, verse by verse. And Augustine, we see some evidence of this evolution of preaching from Lectio Continua to Lectio Selecta. Continua, continual reading, selecta, selected portions. Now, according to this principle in Augustine, we see special lessons being selected for special days. For instance, he said that it was his custom to read the resurrection story from the Gospel of John on Easter Sunday morning. Now, you may think, wow, it was the great Augustine that deviated from uh, Lectio Continua, the continual reading of scripture. But we have to remember that in Augustine's day, the church calendar was being developed. This, uh, the, the Christian year was being quickly developed. And so choosing appropriate lessons for feast days, for instance, or fast days, was Augustine adapting to this widening influence in the Christian church, the church calendar, where we have Easter, we have feast days, there are fast days, and I mean, Orthodox Jews, feast days, fast days, all these other days throughout the year that were special days developed um, and given to special teachings. That was developing in, in Augustine's day. So his um, sharing of Lectio Continua and Lectio Selecta was in light of that cultural context. At the beginning of the fifth century, the church calendar included feasts of Easter, Pentecost, Christmas, a few fast days, especially before Easter. And I mentioned that to show that the Lectio Selecta principle only occupied a small part of Augustine's calendar. But within a few centuries, as we'll see, the principle of Lectio Selecta did entirely, almost entirely replace that continual reading of scripture, picking up one Sabbath where you ended the Sabbath before. Um, that started to, to dissipate. And we see those effects in the medieval age. This is a lot of history, I know, but this is important for why the reformers were recovering what they were recovering. We have to trace the history to see why were they so passionate about expositional preaching? What did they feel the church had lost and needed to recover? That's why this, is, this history is important. So stick with me, okay? I see some of y'all eyes are drifting. <laughs> stick with me. Um, now, I mentioned that uh, before that Augustine is known for his Confessions and City of God works, um, which had deep themes of the inner life of man, uh, religious philosophy, and anthropology. But his sermons were pretty different. They were quite different. Uh, Hughes Old said that his sermons showed how a lofty mind grasped the simple basics of the Christian faith. Augustine used rhetoric. He used sarcasm, he used poetry, he used humor to invite his audiences to understand profound truths. Um, he, he had a poetic and artful um, allegorical interpretation um, of, of scripture at times, but he did it to communicate complex ideas. And uh, something I just discovered, uh, Augustine wrote a manual on preaching uh, entitled On Christian Teaching or On Doctrina Christiana, On Christian Teaching. And I want to try and find that actually. It sounds interesting. Um, another great preacher who lived during the time of Augustine was Leo the Great. For most, he's probably not as well known as Augustine or Ambrose, 
Um, he was a bishop of Rome from 440 to 461, and his preaching ministry is seen through um, the 96 sermons that we have preserved from him. So his sermons tended to be concise, simple, short, sort of straight to the point and clear. Uh, Hughes writes that his preaching is not primarily systematic or a systematic attempt to interpret scripture, but rather a series of sermons based on the lectionary. <clears throat> so the selected reading developed rapidly since the days of Augustine and Leo's sermons are based on that selected reading model. Right, so a transition from synagogue, two lessons, to four lessons, early church, Old Testament, New Testament couplets, to um, Lectio Continua, continue, to now Lectio Selecta, continued reading to selected readings. So there's, a, there's something happening here that's important to set up for the time of the Reformation, <clears throat> okay? So Leo's lessons were intended to explain the scripture lessons that he had been given. He was more intending to present uh, in the liturgical theme of the day. So you see this cultural shift um, and a shift in the pattern of teaching from Lectio Continua to Lectio Selecta. And uh, this widespread influence of that pattern that now dominates most pulpits, even in the days of Leo the Great. So Leo's sermons were more of liturgical homilies than an exposition of scripture. They were uh, commentary, short sermons on texts that were given um, rather than expositions of scripture. But even today, uh, liturgists, they still study Leo the Great because he's an, a great example of preaching the lectionary. Okay, preaching in the Middle Ages, <clears throat> transitioning to there. Uh, any questions on early church before I go to Middle Ages? I promise this does matter. It's important. I know. I know it's history, but it's important. Any questions? Uh, yeah. When did you say that John Chrysostom? When he lived? Did I, did I say when he lived? Let me find it. Chrysostom was from 347 to 407. Any other questions? Okay. Middle Ages. Lastly, I want to take some time looking at the Middle Ages. During this time, sometimes called the Dark Ages, more and more public worship excluded even the most simple kind of sermon. During this period, you can see how the social, economic, and cultural climate had different effects on the church's pulpit. So ordinary parish priests um, even, even then, um, who had a, they had a lesser education than, than they would have before. Um, and even they were able to, by that, have short homilies and sermons based on this practice of the lectionary, where something was given, there was a calendar, there was a text, there was an exhortation, and they were given to simply read that, rather than have an exposition of text. So it was hard to even get, a literary education back then. But with these deficiencies, the pulpit lectionaries became, they, they were established, they became the norm. So these lectionaries contained scriptures and scripture lessons to be read on certain days of the year. And during this time in church history in the West, this covered the entire year. 
So this was done in part to allow any common, moderately educated priest to be able to teach the people. So the lectionary provided scripture and short lessons for edification so that any priest could provide some sort of sermon. So Middle Ages, education is lower, still want to have the priest be able to teach the people. So something was provided, a lectionary. Scripture, short sermon, you just read this. It was sort of pre-established. And this was a transition from the expositional preaching, digging through the text, drawing out what's there, and preaching that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so lectionaries contain scriptures and scripture lessons to be read on certain days of the year. Um, the, the lectionary provided scripture and short sermons. So just like Lectio Continua preaching was common in the patristic age, in the same way lecturneries became the norm in the medieval age. And so some time would pass before the church had a more robust ministry of the word. And this was one of the major elements that the reformers were recovering, substantial biblical preaching in the pulpit. But there were some medieval uh, preachers worth taking note of. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux is uh, one of them. He lived from 1090 to 1153 and preached during the time of the Crusades, the battle, the great battle for the Holy Land. During this study, or during this time, um, as I was reading this, it just, it was fascinating to read that um, uh, Clairvaux's preaching was used to really promote and gather thousands to sign up for the Crusades and uh, fighting, to, uh, fighting for the Holy Land against uh, the Muslims at that time. And it's just very interesting as he's, he's not a politician. Um, he is a religious man, although he did have some influence in the political sphere. But um, he dealt with a lot of philosophical issues of his time and was used in ways to, again, rally for the Crusades. Um, Bernard is also well known for his allegorical interpretation of the Song of Solomon which I want to read for you. This is interesting. He has a sermon from the Song of Solomon, and it's called The Kiss of the Lord's Feet, Hands, and Mouth. He says, Today the text we are to study is the book of our own experience. You must therefore turn your attention inwards. Each one must take note of his own particular awareness of the things I am about to discuss. I am attempting to discover if any of you have been privileged to say from his heart, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. Those to whom it was given to utter these words sincerely are comparatively few, but any who has received this mystical kiss from the mouth of Christ is at least once, or who received it at least once, seeks again the intimate experience and eagerly looks for its frequent renewal. He has sermons on Song of Solomon that sound that way. They're very poetic, they're beautifully written, but they're allegorical interpretations. So he would read Solomon as Christ, something now, and he has these sermons about this intimacy with Christ. And again, if we read these sermons, we would probably say, <laughs> a little strange but uh, this, this is how he preached in his day and this was his form of preaching it was poetic, it was beautiful 
Um, and it was actually written more towards uh, those within the monastic communities than it was to those outside of the monastic communities. That also, was also interesting to me as I read it. Okay, moving on through medieval. A little later, uh, 1180s to 1230, we have another uh, medieval preacher, um, uh, Francis of Assisi. Now, um, we have sort of two Italian orders, Franciscans, Dominicans, which I'll talk about a bit. But Francis of Assisi, he founded the Franciscans, um, who was known, he was known for his powerful preaching ministry to the poor. So his primary ministry was, was to the poor. He was especially interested in preaching the scriptures, and he heavily influenced the depth of biblical content in medieval preaching. So the Franciscans learned all they could from uh, the Augustans of St. Victor. And the, the Augustans, or the Augustinians of St. Victor, were the leading biblical scholars of the day. And so Francis of Assisi and his Franciscans were heavily influenced by them. Um, a heart and eye to the poor, but also uh, astute in establishing biblical teaching. Um, another Italian, uh, Dominique, he lived from 1170 to 1221. He founded the uh, Dominican Order, or the Order of Preachers, it's called. So he had a similar vision of Francis of Assisi, but uh, Dominique's preaching was more concerned with guarding faithful Christians from false teaching and false doctrine and heresies. So the Dominicans emphasized um, catechetical preaching rather than expository preaching. So these sermons were more organized by a catechism with scripture reference rather than books of the Bible. That was their approach. Now both the Franciscans and the Dominicans were strong on cultivating the art of public speaking and communication. And so they wanted to be as clear as they could be, so they spent a lot of time working on how to communicate well, how to make sure that our speech is as clear as it can be so that our hearers are influenced. Um, another great preacher in the medieval age is Bonaventure, uh, 1217 to 74. So he's known mainly for his expository sermons in the Gospel of John and his spiritual exegesis of Genesis. Um, one last preacher I want to touch on, medieval ages, uh, a preacher who's usually thought as a systematic theologian, but he was a, a preacher, Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 74. Now he was of the Dominican order, and like most monks of that order, he was best known for his catechetical preaching. He preached sermons on the Apostles' Creed, on the Ten Commandments, on the Lord's Prayer. Now, Hughes Oliphant Old said this. He said, there's much great preaching in the Middle Ages, but there's also plenty of bad preaching. Preaching that had lost its focus, preaching that had become too theoretical or too melodramatic, preaching that had lost contact with the Word of God and aimed at worldly success and popularity. He says, this can happen in preaching. There was plenty of preaching at the end of the Middle Ages. It was just that Christians yearned for a purer, more devout, more enlightened preaching. And that actually leads us to our class next week, Reformation preaching. What did they feel the church has lost? What were they trying to recover? What were they reforming from and to? Um, and that's what we'll talk about next week. So I hope that survey was helpful. It's important to lay that groundwork before we talk about preaching during the time of the Reformation. 
Okay, uh, any questions before I close out? All right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for your witness throughout the church that we have these records that we can look at. These uh, brothers who came before us get a sort of peek into their preaching and um, learn ourselves from those who live before us in uh, your, your holy church. We pray that you would uh, inform us, enlighten us, help us to um, see Lord, what you've been doing throughout church history and even um, as we prepare um, to go into the service now. Um, Lord, let us go in with hearts of um, thanksgiving and, and grateful and, and gratefulness as we listen to the word preached and exposited. Um, we, um, we are privileged uh, to live in a time such as this. Um, we are privileged to be members and attenders of it in a church such as this where um, there is a conviction about the exposition of the Holy Word um, as your voice to your people. So Lord, speak to us as the word is preached. Teach us, conform us, um, chastise us, discipline us as uh, our heavenly father to his beloved children. And um, Lord, do that work that only you can do in our hearts. Uh, bless your preached word and bless us as we give ourselves to the, the means of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You guys are dismissed.